Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Fridays with a Scientist. Today we have Bridget Gross. Bridget, how are you today? Good, I'm doing well. So Bridget, just a little background, where are you from? Uh, what brought you here? What do you do now? So I'm originally from Ohio. I did my bachelor's degree in environmental studies at the College of Worcester, go Scots. And um, I moved to Nebraska in 2018, my first go around, I like to say, as, um, as I did my master's in entomology out here. And then I worked in North Carolina for two years as an apiary inspector. And now I'm back out here for my job as a recruiter. Excellent. So how long have you been in your job as a recruiter? About six months now. Excellent. So you and I have been here about the same amount of time, at least in terms of our current positions. Yeah. I just happen to have been here a lot longer than you, but I'm glad you came back. Uh, that's good if you were here and then left and then came back. Yeah. So um, so you were here for your uh, master's in entomology. So what was kind of your focus of, of that? Like what did, mostly did you work on? So my thesis focused on women beekeeper in an education program that we ran with the Center for Rural Affairs. And it was awesome. We found that knowledge went up and uh, we also looked at self-efficacy. So how confident the woman felt about their beekeeping. And we also found that that went up through the program. The interesting part to my research, because I was out there analyzing their behavior as they were beekeeping. And so we found that what really benefited them was actually having a second person there. So in that case, it was kind of me being there to kind of help walk them through beekeeping steps and whatnot and help them make decisions about their beekeeping and everything. It was an un, unintended part of my research, essentially, that I became one of the research subjects myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty interesting is you doing some research and realize you're kind of the focus of the research. Yeah, yeah, Excellent. yeah. yeah. Um, so out of curiosity, what are some of the steps of beekeeping um, lots of like beginner steps, like how do you get into beekeeping? Sure. Um, it's talking to a complete novice here. Okay. Um, so I always tell people get into a beekeeping class right away because I think a lot of people get into beekeeping and they don't realize how much work it takes. Beekeeping is not, you know, back in the seventies, I've been told that beekeeping was kind of in its golden age where you could just put out some hives, check on them, you know, a couple times a year and reap in lots of honey. That's just not what beekeeping is nowadays. It's a lot of pest management. It's a lot of learning stuff of IPM. It's a lot of uh, science behind it now. You know, you have to be well-versed in pesticides and pesticides and how they interact with bees and whether that's a pesticide that you're putting in your colony versus a pesticide that's maybe on a flower. It's learning bloom times now as we have, uh, as forage has gone away with lots of development. So it's a lot of work. And so that's why I always tell people start with a beekeeping class because you rather spend your $100, $200 on the class and then go, that's not what I want to do versus the thousand of dollars to get into bees and then realize it's not what you want to do. That sounds like more than just one class though. Uh, depends on the class that you take. So UNL offers day-long courses where you're there eight to five. So it certainly takes you back to your school days a little bit. Um, That'd be a very intense day. Yes, like. very intense day. And those are often followed up with a field day. So you have your lecture. Usually they do them sometime in like January, February, and then a field day following up in April or May. Um, I'm not sure what their fall dates are for those. 
versus when I worked in North Carolina, I actually taught a four week long beekeeping course. So we went every Saturday and we went from about eight to noon or one o'clock, depending on how long we took. Um, and that would be a lecture that I would run. And then I would coordinate with the beekeepers who helped me teach that course with like a field uh, session of what we would do. So, you know, we'd go over what is a smoker? And if you don't know what a smoker is, that's essentially a little tiny, um, have you seen one? I don't even know how you would describe one. I I think I have, but I don't know that I could give it a good description yeah. just because it's its own, yeah. it's its own entity. It's it's very hard to describe, but essentially you make a really bad fire, is what I always tell people, because you light a fire and then you are constantly trying to just get the smoke part. And the smoke helps to calm down the bee. So we go over how to light that. You know, we'd go over the different pesticides that you put into your colony and why you put them. Me being apiary inspector, I'd always point out the legalities behind using the pesticides because beekeepers don't always like to follow the legalities of it. Well, um, they're not the only ones. Yeah, they're not the only ones. I shouldn't blame them. <laughs> and I do understand it's a lot cheaper sometimes to go your own route, um, but I do always remind them that if something goes wrong, I can't help you out um, if you're doing it illegally, at least in North Carolina. In Nebraska, we don't have an apiary inspector. So, uh, so yeah, so we go over all sorts of different field techniques for keeping bees. So that's just a different way of, uh, of learning bees. And then of course, like Cornell offers an online, um, sorry, uh, University of Florida offers an online master beekeeping program. So that's similar to like a master naturalist or a master gardener program where you can go through all these different steps. And that one costs quite a bit of money because I think it's like a hundred or $200 per each module that you do. Um, but that's just a different route through Nebraska. We actually have the Great Plains Master Beekeeping Program. So all of those lectures are free online. And then you get so you're required to get so many volunteer hours and so many hours in the field. And then eventually you take a field exam and that's how you move up through the levels there. So and then what do you get at the end of it? You get to become a master beekeeper. <laughs> Um, so you get like, your own certificate. And yeah, everything. you get like a certificate and stuff like that. I think I think there are like coveted hats that you maybe get in Nebraska. I don't know. I haven't seen them. But I think what what you really get is you earn a lot of respect, and you're you've certainly gone through and paid your dues in terms of beekeeping. So you've really gone through a lot of academic programs. So you get to kind of show to other people, similar to like a college degree, where you get to say, "Yeah, I really know my stuff." Maybe oh, sure. not with a college degree, but. <laughs> well, no, but it still shows you've demonstrated a certain amount of knowledge and you've gone through enough training that you can do certain things. You can speak intelligently. You exactly. probably, probably as you can teach other people how to do something. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, which is probably the most important aspect. And I, I think that really actually, I mean, that ties in very well with extension. It's mm -hmm. teaching, but in a non-traditional sense, like we are working with the public to help educate them on all sorts of matters. Exactly. So I just did have a couple more questions though, about beekeeping before we transition to what you're doing now. Uh, so you mentioned pesticides with the bee colonies. So exactly what are the pesticides used for, for the, for the colonies? So we have an ectoparasite called Varroa destructor, which I think is the coolest name ever. Varroa for destructor. Varroa destructor. Yes. Um, isn't that such a cool name? It almost sounds like a, it, it is a cool name and it, Varroa just, it almost sounds like a, a snake or a dinosaur or something. Yeah. Sounds to me, it's always sounded like an evil villain. A little bit like a child's evil villain. In sure. It. Well, I think some people think my a lot, a lot of little children think my voice is evil or spooky. <laughs> so, 
uh, that, that aside. Yes. <laughs> um, so it is probably one of the most, probably the most dangerous pest to honeybees to the Western honeybee Abyss mellifera. It came to the United States in 1987. Um, it, its native host is Apis serrane. So an Apis serrane only uh, feeds on the male bees versus an Apis mellifera, mellifera feeds on the female and the male bees. So that's where it becomes really dangerous because it's feeding on our bees that are providing care for the larva and the pupa. It's feeding on the bees that are caring for the queen. It's feeding on the bees that are out foraging. And it vectors about 20 different viruses. So that's really, it'd be more of a nuisance if it didn't vector all these viruses to our bees. So there are um, a number of different pesticides that you can use to treat for mites in your colony. So I should mention it's a mite that feeds on a bee. And so you have organic, quote unquote, organic pesticides such as uh, oxalic acid, really anyone considers it organic unless it's a synthetic pesticide. Mm -hmm. So it's all based on what whatever your definition of organic is. Um, but so you have like oxalic acid, thymol, formic acid that you can use to treat for them. You have a synthetic pesticide called uh, Epivar, which is Amitraz. There are a couple of other synthetics that people don't really use because there's resistance to them. Mm -hmm. So just a number of different ways. And some of them are like gels that you put into the colony. Some of them are strips. Some of them you vaporize them into the colony. Some of them you mix with sugar syrup and then you douse your bees in sugar syrup. So lots of different ways. Sure. And the legality of it would be probably more the application of some of those pesticides. Yes. So making sure that you're wearing your proper, well, you should always wear your proper PPE, even if it's not legally required, but making sure that you're using proper PPE. Um, the biggest one is with oxalic acid. Beekeepers like to go buy their own wood bleach, which is usually a high percentage of oxalic acid. And then they use that to treat. Um so that is tech, that is illegal. And so I always tell beekeepers when I worked as an apiary inspector, I'm like, you don't want to do that. Then if something happens to your bee colony and a pesticide inspector shows up, you can get fined. Um, that's usually the biggest thing is that you get fined for it. But also, too, um, if you accidentally apply that treatment inappropriately and it kills your bees and you say pesticides kill my bees, well, they did, but that was your own fault. So that's usually the angle that I take with beekeepers is you want to be using the right stuff so that way you don't accidentally kill your own bees. Because I have seen beekeepers do that using off-brand oxalic acid. Hence where the training comes in. Yes, exactly. The last thing you want to do is kill your own bees. Exactly. So you mentioned there was not an apiarian inspector in the state of Nebraska. Would that imply that there just aren't that many beekeepers up here? Um, no, it's, I know Judy Wu Smart, who works in the UNLB lab, uh, she's been working very hard to get an inspector, but it's just a difficult uh, legal process, legislative process, I guess I should say, to get an inspector put in place. We did have an inspector, I think up until like 2000 around there, and then the program just kind of got dissolved away. And I know Judy's crew has really helped fill in some of those needs, but it really stretches them really thin. So um, if you care about bees, you should certainly advocate for an apiary inspector here in Nebraska. Oh, sure. Um, but yeah, so it's just a program that got kind of dissolved away. I think there's technically still an account for it, but I don't think there's like any money in that account to hire anyone. But it would certainly help serve the beekeepers. You know, there was an outbreak of American fowl brood, which is a very deadly uh, 
we use the term brood to refer to the larval and pupal stages of honeybees. And so we would call American fowl brood a bacterial brood disease. And so um, it's very deadly, it's very contagious, and the only way to get rid of it is by killing your bees and burning all the infected equipment because the spores can survive in freezers, they can survive in really warm temperatures, well, they can't survive the fire. But so that'd be really hot then. Yeah, yeah. Some beekeepers will say, oh, if you torch the inside of your boxes, but to me, that still just is too close um, to be using that equipment. We did in North Carolina, we used to have a, um, a chamber where we could gas the equipment. And I forget the name of the chemical that we would use to gas the equipment, but that would kill the spores. But that gas chamber is now out of commission. So you can't even send your, in North Carolina, you're back to having to burn all your equipment. So, uh, so yeah, you have to burn it all. And that's just a lot of money loss. And that's also your beast that you've lost. So there was like an outbreak for that up in, uh, in Omaha, and that's where an inspector could be someone that beekeepers could call and could get out there and say, yep, this is what you have. These are the steps that you have to take and potentially could have saved that beekeeper from having to burn a number of his colonies to maybe just burning one of his colonies off. That makes sense. Yeah. It's a very, very targeted approach versus widespread destruction. Yes. If, if you know what you can do. That yes. Is. And apiary inspectors too, you know, my formal role was not extension in North Carolina, but we kind of served as extension agents a little bit too. You know, we worked really closely with the local extension agents. Um, it was definitely that process of taking the science behind the beekeeping and turning that into tangible work for beekeepers. So kind of taking, this is what the papers are saying. What does that mean for you as a beekeeper? Yeah, so you would have worked for the state of North Carolina then? Yes, I, work, I worked as part of a state government agent. So how did you get interested in, in bees and beekeeping? Um, so I took the route that I recommend people don't take. And that was, I was concerned about bees and I said, I want to save the bees. So I got a job working in the Ohio State Bee Lab, which I would do again. But we get a lot of people who say, I want to save the bees. And then they get into beekeeping. And I'm like, that's maybe not the best route because you don't know what you're getting into. And now I recommend to people, if you go, I want to save the bees, plant flowers. That's your best thing you can do. And then you're saving not just the honeybee, but all of our native pollinators as well. Yeah, we've done, we planted a few flowers that supposedly are good for the bees. But I have seen more bees around our property mm -hmm. since we planted those flowers earlier this summer. Yeah. But those are the reasons we did this. We wanted to, A, we were just trying to get rid of some grass that wasn't doing very well and putting in some native plants and some you know more pollinator-friendly plants just because say, we do need more, more bees, it seems. Um, so where, where else have you worked with bees besides Nebraska, North Carolina, and, and Ohio? So, um, so I started in Ohio, then came out here, went to North Carolina, came back here. I have also worked as part of the USAID Farmer to Farmer program. So through that program, I got to go to the Dominican Republic twice and Honduras once to do some beekeeping down there. And that's a fun program. Um, each time I was there for about two weeks. And so that was working with local beekeeping organizations, kind of similar to my role as an apiary inspector, going down there and helping them learn how to diagnose diseases, how to, one of my programs was solely how to take good notes for beekeeping um, so that way they could on their own diagnose and keep track of their colonies. And that was really interesting too, because a number of those beekeepers uh, could not read or write. So we had to come up with creative ways for them to take notes on their beekeeping. Um, we talked about secondary products. We talked about pests and pathogens. We talked about appropriate uses of pesticides in a bee colony, you know, down in Honduras. 
they had received some bad advice from a beekeeper down there. And so they were treating their colonies all the time for um, brood diseases, but they were using like fungal, um, not fungal pesticides, but they were essentially using the wrong treatments. And so it was interesting and kind of a little sad to hear that they had been given bad advice on how to keep their bees. So, but that was, that's a really fun program. I really enjoyed it. Honduras is absolutely beautiful. And the beekeepers down there are fabulous uh, in the Dominican Republic and in Honduras. And it was kind of nice. I do not speak Spanish, but when we do bees, it's kind of a universal language. At one point, uh, my field guide in the Dominican Republic, he had to step away and take a call. And we managed to go through all the colonies and just by broken English and broken Spanish, we were able to sit there and inspect the colonies. And he came back and he was like, how'd you do that? I was like, beekeeping's universal. I was about to ask you if you were fluent in Spanish or if you had a translator with you or if you just somehow managed to make it work with having a language barrier. Um, so I, I speak very little Spanish. Um, oh, you mean both. Yeah, so I speak very little Spanish, but again, my Spanish mostly is in beekeeping terms now. Um, <laughs> And, but uh, they sent me out there with a field guide who was able to translate for us. Yeah, see, science transcends language. Yes, exactly. So just kind of shifting gears a little bit. So you are now, you're back here in Nebraska. Yes. And I know you still probably have some hobby of working with bees. And, mm-hmm. and you're also uh, training for a half marathon. Um, my best uh, wishes and good luck to you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, not sending condolences, but uh, I've always admired people like to, We'll just go out and run like that. I just have never had the desire to do that. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I question a little bit when I go on my long runs why I decided to re- sign up for it, but you know, we'll make it through. <laughs> that just proves you're normal. Have some sense of sanity. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but, so, but you're now a re- technically a recruitment specialist, correct? Yes. So I'm just kind of curious what was what went through your mind when you decided that you wanted to pursue this type of uh, career? It's, it's been probably, I'm assuming it was a pretty big change. Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't because my background has been in outreach through, you know, my master's work was, uh, my assistantship was outreach coordinator for the department of entomology. So my background there was in outreach and then being an apiary inspector, it's again, a lot of outreach to beekeepers. And so for me, that was kind of the, that's been the common thread with them because I'm not doing traditional outreach, but of course, through my current role, we still do community engagement. It's outreach to students to teach them about natural resources and why natural resources is a great career path for them. So that's kind of been the thread between the, between my different, uh, I guess, careers and pathways that I've had. But um, kind of making the switch was I really liked working with bees and I think I was just ready for a change out of it. And yeah. You seem to enjoy what you're doing now. Yeah, I do. I thoroughly enjoy what I'm doing. I, I know I enjoy when I see you walking around campus with uh, prospective students oh. and sometimes they're, they're parents. Yes. Uh, so do you think you're having a background, though, in environmental science and entomology and just having relatively good knowledge of other areas and natural resources. Do you think that is helpful for the position you're in? I think it's really helpful because then I can speak from personal experience, um, especially to parents who go, well, what's my kid going to do with a bachelor's degree in natural resources? So I think it certainly helps that I can kind of reflect on my own path that I've taken and say, well, you can go the graduate school route and, you know, do extension or science, or you can do, you know, working for a governmental organization. I can talk about my time there. 
So, or I can even going back to my undergrad days, you know, I worked as a field technician, but that's certainly a job that many people do post uh, their bachelor's degree as well. So I'm able to talk about that a little bit as well. Um, so I think, I certainly think it helps have that background to help students realize that there are careers there and help tell parents, especially parents who go, I don't know what this means. So do you feel like you're selling to parents as much or more than the students? I think it really depends on who I'm talking to. Um, I certainly, we had Experience the Power Red this past weekend, which is a Kasner hosted event where we uh, we do some browsing for students and then they get to go to different sessions and visit with uh, visit with us different recruiters to talk about academics. And I certainly had one parent who she was very much like, I have no clue what it means for my son to go into natural resources and what careers there are in there. So sometimes it's pitching to the parents. Um, Usually it is because the students obviously already, they have an interest in it. That's why they're coming to visit me. But it is sometimes having to pitch to the students as well, because they're sitting there debating, well, I really like fishing, but is fishing going to be my hobby or is fishing going to become my career? <laughs> sure. Or I really like um, weather, but is that yeah. going to be in my career? Is that a hobby? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I was very interested in the weather and I was very, at a very young age. I also, my parents grew up on farms, so I was interested in how weather affected farming. And, you know, eventually I kind of got to do a job where I get to kind of do a mix of both, but it took me until I was about 40 to actually do that. <laughs> so eventually sometimes you get your dream. It just sometimes comes a little bit later than you expect. Yes. Uh, so you probably get a good mix of students that are interested in, in majors in Kastner and SNR specifically. Yeah, and I would say it's a good mix of urban and rural students, although they sometimes definitely have different focuses. Like I think sometimes for urban students, I know I, I was a suburban kid, so I kind of grew up in that mix of my grandparents had a big farm that I would go out to, but I didn't grow up on the farm. I grew up in suburbia. Sure. So we um, had a similar experience in that sense then, I guess. Yeah. And so you get students who go, I'm really interested in the environment, but maybe they've never had that experience of working on the farm or like we get some students who come in and they go, I'm really interested in fishing or camping, but they don't know how to do that. So I know Kenneth and I have worked on how do we uh, engage with those students and how do we get them those experiences? So, but a good mix of rural versus urban students. Um, I guess I kind of forgot your original question there and where I was going. No, 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 it was good. I was, I was just kind of curious if it was, it seems to me that just from what limited interaction I've had with students in the school natural resources that we have a mix of students that are from Omaha and Lincoln, some more urban areas. And we also have quite a few students that are, um, you know, for more rural areas, more out state. And they, they do seem like they have somewhat different interests. Yeah, the, the fishing aspect I can certainly see, but I definitely noticed that all of them seem to have some passion for the environment more broadly. Yes. And one thing I, I, I realized teaching that uh, climate and crisis class last spring was for a lot of students, it was like a seminal camping trip or a storm or something that really piqued their interest in the environment and the changing environment. Uh, and their motivation to do better than what we've been doing. I I would agree with that. Yes, yes. And I've I'm just saying I most students that I've encountered in SNR have been very good students. It seems like it's a great program. Um, obviously, probably bragging a little bit here since we're uh, in the school both work for the school yeah. natural resources. But I do legitimately think that we do have uh, some very good programs. 
uh, in here. So did you, do we actually uh, recruit a good bit out of state or is it mostly just Nebraska focused? It's, I would say in visit wise, it's mostly Nebraska focused, but we get a good number of students who come from out of state as well. Um, I would have to go back and look at the numbers, but when I did, I want to say that we were kind of on track with the university. Um, but I believe when I was first doing research coming into recruiting, it's something like two thirds of students at UNL are from Nebraska itself. So certainly lots of recruitment in state. And I would say most of my visits come from in-state students. Sure. So do you actually get to go travel different places to do recruiting or is it mostly just students coming to campus and you talk to them, walk them around, those sorts of things? I would say it's a good mix of both because of course, uh, the, I guess the first thing that comes to mind with this job is the idea of having the students who sign up for a visit, they come here, we talk about academics, we take them around Hardin Hall a little bit, maybe we find a faculty member to come sit in and kind of talk to them about what they do a little bit. Um, but there is some traveling. So we actually have a partnership with Lincoln Northeast High School. So yeah. I was actually there this past week. So not a big not a big trip, but um, it was a really fun one getting to sit and talk with students about uh, careers and majors and stuff like that. And we do go to National FFA as well. So that's in Indianapolis this year. Oh, awesome. So so some traveling around that way. Actually, my wife's a FFA alum and there's family connections to Lincoln Northeast. Go Rockets. Yes. <laughs> so is that the program that uh, Bailey uh, runs? Yes, it okay. is the program that Bailey fights. Awesome. I told her back in the summer that I would be happy to talk to the students about climate change or anything climate oriented, and they could take a tour of the state climate office. She hasn't taken me up on that yet, but maybe I should re-engage with her about that. You definitely should, and um, I might start pulling you in then on some visits. That's fine. It's as long as uh, students understand I cannot be a primary advisor, just yes, some yeah. extension role. But mm -hmm. I'm, I'm always happy to engage and talk to students. Mm -hmm. I really do Enjoy. That's actually, I think, one of the most enjoyable aspects of being at university versus being in the private sector is that you do get to interact with students. Mm -hmm. And it's also just being nice being here on campus and being able to interact with people in person. I spent a long time being purely remote and that gets kind of old after a while. Yes, it does. Uh, so just kind of finishing up here. So what would be what do you what would you say is your most enjoyable aspect of the job other than of course having Jonas around. Oh yes. Jonas is a great coworker. Um but on a serious note, I would say my coworkers. Um I love getting to work with Jenny and Sarah and Kenneth. Uh we make a great team, I like to think anyway. And Jenny Dower. Yes. Okay. And um you know when I was first looking at other at other jobs when I was ready to get out of uh inspection. I applied here and I applied for a couple of other roles within the university because I was ready to come back to a more academic setting. And my advisor, my old master's advisor told me, he was like, if you, if SNR offers you a job, you take that job because it's a great place to be. And I, I would say that is held up to my expectations because I was like, well, that's, it's a big role then to give SNR saying that it's going to be one of the best places to work. But I think it really has been a great place to work. You know, everyone's super friendly. Everyone loves what they do and whatnot. And yeah, yeah. all the way, all the way from Larkin down, down to the students. So. Yep. And I would fully agree with you. Yeah. So anything else for the good of the cause today? Um, no, I don't think I have anything else unless you have other questions for me. I don't believe I do. Thank you very much, Bridget. Yeah. Thank you for having me.